What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and excited to bring you our third round of tax topics for the month of August. So we're really excited. We don't talk tax too much on the show, but excited to talk tax this month in celebration that we just launched the Physician Tax Advisors, which is an amazing CPA firm that we just partnered with today's guest. John McCarthy is back on the show co-founder of Physician Tax Advisors, along with myself and Casey. And we are going to be talking all about real estate and how real estate does affect your tax, but also how the taxes evolved inside of real estate when you buy or sell real estate or invest in syndications, all the fun stuff. So can't wait to jump in. You're going to learn a ton. Remember, this is educational purposes only. This is not financial planning or tax advice. All right, let's jump in and hang out with John. What's up, John? Welcome back on the show. Thanks for having me back. You, you actually wanted to talk to me more than twice. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm excited that uh, people still want to talk about taxes at this point. Watch out. Well, actually, we're doing the whole month of August is going to be all around tax, understanding how this works within your portfolios, how this works just with your incomes, the various types of incomes. And today we've got a fun show because this is actually a fun topic that we're just kind of introducing some boring old tax into, but everyone's talking about real estate. Everyone loves real estate, which is great, right? I've invested in real estate. My whole family does real estate. So we talk around real estate on the show, but never really deep into the tax piece. So I thought it'd be really unique and I think extremely beneficial to have you on to go through, you know, all the ins and outs of tax when it comes to real estate. So for the example, I think if we can kind of stay in, one bubble, if you will, for right now, let's say that our example is that someone's going to buy a single family home and they're going to find renters and they're going to rent it out. What are some of the ways that this rental property could affect their taxes? Yeah. So there's a number of tax specific items that we'll want to talk about here because real estate is kind of one of those areas that's a little bit more complicated than you might think from a tax perspective. So we'll go through a couple things here. And Ryan is, of course, very familiar with real estate. So I'm sure you'll have some questions for me as well. And John, like it's no secret, you know, we've used you for five plus years now to do all of our returns. Like if you want to use examples for myself, like I don't mind as well kind of as we're working through this. So, you know, we know that this is going to hit, you know, the schedule E and all that. So let's unpack how one single family home, if someone was to buy this, how that kind of would impact their tax situation. So starting with a single family home, there's a couple topics we'll want to touch on. And one of them we've already talked a little bit about on one of the prior shows, but that's the concept of depreciation. So maybe we'll start there Mm -hmm. just because it is one of those areas that's not as well, now wildly known how it works from a tax perspective. And then we'll talk a little bit more about kind of the dollars and cents of how this all rolls into the tax return and actually getting nerdy. (laughs) Dollars and we're going to cents. Let's tackle depreciation. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the lesser known areas is depreciation. And for tax purposes, what the IRS allows us to do is, you know, whatever you paid for this single family property originally, the IRS is going to allow us to take, you know, what in some cases is kind of referred to as a paper loss or paper deduction for some of the original cost of this property. And we say paper loss here because we're not actually paying for the deduction in the year we're taking it, but we're allowed to take a portion of what we originally purchased the property for, be it you know maybe last year or 10 years ago, and take a portion of that as a deduction against this year's income. 
So there's a couple things to keep in mind here and a couple common errors that we see. One is that uh, people don't take depreciation into account at all. Oh, oh. Which is a big one. That's giving Uncle Sam way too much money if that's the case. Yeah, we do a lot of amended returns uh, related to that for clients that come to us. So that's a big area. But another thing that's often missed is that you know we can't take a deduction for the entire amount of the property. We do need to take into account that there's a building there and there's some land there. So we're getting a little into the weeds, but it really is an important topic. You cannot depreciate land. It's a non-depreciable asset. So if you bought a property for two hundred thousand dollars, you know we can't deduct that full two hundred thousand over the life of the rental. We can only deduct, let's say, one hundred fifty thousand, and maybe fifty thousand of it's related to the land. So that's an important item that I'd like to get out there as much as we can because we see that error a lot in returns. Yeah. So using that example, right? We've got a hundred fifty thousand dollar building, and you've got fifty thousand dollars of land that you bought altogether for two hundred thousand dollars. And that will be predetermined before you start doing anything like it'll be broken out. So you don't have to like figure this out on your own. It will be presented to you. And then now that we've got the $150,000 of value to the building, now we can talk about its useful life and kind of expand on that. So you can't uh, obviously deduct all 150000 in year one. Uh, the uh, IRS doesn't like that. Them. That's a good way to get your return audited. We don't want to do that. But there is a useful life period that the IRS allows us to deduct that over. And for whatever reason, the uh, the tax gods have decided that's 27.5 years. I'm not sure how we got there with that, but that's the useful life that we're using. To make it more complicated. Yes. So we can take one twenty-seven point five amount of, you know, one twenty-seventh of that amount as a deduction each year on the return. You know, even though, you know, we hope from a cash flow perspective, your rental property is positive and we're hopefully generating some cash flow after expenses. But for tax purposes, when we take into account that depreciation, we might find that we have, you know, basically a paper loss that we have, you know, a loss that we can report for tax purposes, even though we had positive cash flow. So as the example, yes, if you're buying rental real estate, you need to have cash flow. Otherwise, you bought something hoping to speculate that it will go up in price. You know, you're banking on appreciation, which is what pretty much everyone in Southern California here is doing because nothing cash flows. Whereas in the Midwest, you know, you might be getting one or one and a half percent, you know, on that money and that on that rents and it actually be fantastic to have great cash flow. But it might not appreciate as much. So in this example that John and I are kind of walking through, 127th and a half on that $150,000 building would net about $5,500 in depreciation. So if you were making $3,000 a year on your property, that's the cash that actually hits your bank after paying the mortgage and all the expenses, you would still actually come out with about a $2,500 loss on paper. And that's what John was you know, referring to as, you know, your paper losses wasn't an actual loss. You actually made money. And this is why real estate generally gets pitched. You can make money and claim the loss. What most people fail to tell you is the next piece on the recapture. So I'd like you to spend a little time talking about depreciation recapture and what that means and how that affects when you sell the property because they don't give it to you for free. Yeah, that's an important point. And it catches a lot of people by surprise when they go to sell their property years later. They're like, well, I bought it for $200,000. i am going to sell it for two ten. dollars Hey, I'm making some money. That's great. Then they come to their tax guy at the end of the year and say, well, your basis in the property 
is quite a bit less actually, and your gain is going to be a lot higher, and your tax bill is going to be a lot higher, and uh, you know it's a, a surprise. So let's talk a little bit about basis because that's a, kind of a loaded tax term. So let's explain a little bit about what that means. When you originally purchase a property, let's say for the two hundred thousand dollars, that's going to be your basis, your starting basis in the property, and that's how we calculate gain or loss for tax purposes. Whatever your proceeds are minus your basis, that's going to be your gain or loss. So we start out with that $200,000 as our basis, but what happens when we depreciate the property over a period of time, it reduces our basis for tax purposes. So you know, if we keep that property for the full 27 and a half years, you know, at the end, all we've got really is land in our basis. So we've got this $50,000 of land that we never took a deduction for and now, you know, if we sell it for 200000 at the end of these 27 years, you know, when we think we might be break even, oops, we actually got $150,000 gain because we've taken that $150,000 of deductions over the last 27 years. So the IRS keeps track of that. And unfortunately, we do too from a tax perspective. Now, the good news, though, is not at your ordinary income, right? You're not paying that, that high rate. You're paying long-term capital gains rates on that. But then there's the part that people fail to realize is right is they're they're getting this tax break every year, and then you go to sell it ten years down the road, you've got this massive bill even at a favorable long term cap gain rate. You're going what like how is this possible? And it's like well you got this massive benefit along, you know for the last ten years. Some of the strategies will then never sell it, right? And that's one. And the other one is to ten thirty one, and we'll talk about that in a second. But if you never sell it. So then what happens, let's say that I own this property for 31 years and, you know, it's fully paid off, fully depreciated, everything's there. And I pass in 31 years, it goes down to my kids. What happens then? Yeah, it can be an effective way to pass wealth on to the next generation. So, you know, the benefit here would be, you know, if you die with the property and it passes through your estate is we get what's called a step up in basis for that property for whoever the beneficiary is for it. The benefit here is that no one pays capital gains on that that step up in basis. So let's say our $200,000 property is now worth $400,000 and we pass away and leave it to our heirs. Our heirs could sell it the next day for $400,000 and little to no tax impact to them. And that's because the IRS, you know, like I mentioned earlier, allows that step up in basis to whatever the fair market value is on the date that you pass away. You know, as long as you can... Uh, you know, hang on to that property for that full period of time, your heirs can enjoy that income tax-free. Yeah. So part of this is, you know, when you're talking about real estate, it's like location, location, location. You want to buy in the premium spots, right? You not necessarily pay premium for it, but you want to buy in really good areas because if you are going to hold this long-term, maybe not, you're not planning until you die, but if you're holding this long-term, you know, things shift, demographics shift in cities and you just got to be really, really aware. That's why you can't just go shotgun and buy things in all different cities and all different areas of the U.S. because you can't become an expert in all of that. If you're like, well, Ryan, that sounds cool if I can just give it to them tax-free, but I'm not planning on owning this thing for 30, 40, 50, or whatever it is until I pass away. How can I maybe limit some of that gain or not, not necessarily pay the cap gain tax? And there's something called a 1031 exchange. I think it'd be really beneficial here to talk a little bit on how a 1031 works, but also then at some point the tax bill will come due if you sell and you don't. So why don't you dig in a little bit on 1031 exchanges? Yeah. So the IRS does have a method here in which we can defer 
some gains into the future. Like Brian mentioned, it's a 1031 exchange is the terminology around it. Basically, what this allows us to do is swap a property and swap a piece of real estate for another piece of real estate and defer any gains that might be due if you had just outright sold the property. Now, from a function perspective, how this works is that the basis that we talked about earlier takes into account any gain or loss that you would have had on that that initial property that you swapped for, and it is computed into the new basis for the new property. So it is a deferral mechanism, which is an important thing to keep in mind here. Unlike when you would pass away, you know, with a property and it goes to your heirs tax free, you know, that's an avoidance, you know, tax thing. And avoidance is okay as long as we do it legally, right? So avoidance is good. But this, in contrast, is a deferral mechanism. So, you know, you would still owe tax someday when this new property is sold, provided, you know, you don't hold it until death, like we talked about earlier. So important to know the the avoidance versus deferral. Which is one thing you could do. There's lots of strategies around 1031ing it and eventually passing away. And then the step up occurs and you avoid that piece. But now that money that you've put in, that you've continually rolled with more and more equity, you can't just go roll it out. You actually have to keep kind of snowballing it, if you will, which is, this is actually a good snowball, right? You're building wealth and accumulating. But every time you go to sell, you have a very small window of time. You can't defer this out multiple years, or you have a very small window of time to then turn it and roll it into another like-kind property and keep that snowball essentially rolling. And if you do pass away, then that step up occurs. Now, John, there's active and non-active participation in real estate. And I've done a whole show on the real estate professional status, and maybe you could talk just a little bit about that. But I think also distinguishing between active and not active. Yeah, it's an important distinction, once again, because uh, this is an area where a lot of clients might get tripped up and thinking, hey, I'm going to have this great big deduction this year because I lost money on my rental property. And uh, and they come to the tax guy at the end of the year and say, no, we have to carry that forward, unfortunately. And this is where you know active and non-active participation comes into play. So too much of a good thing uh, is not good for the IRS, right? So they want to find ways to limit deductions. And this is one of the ways they do it. Depending on your income level, even if you have active participation, sometimes your losses can be limited. So let's let's talk a little bit about what active participation is. Active participation is generally a pretty easy standard, but what it means is that you do have to be somewhat involved in the rental property. So by involved, we can mean you know, picking tenants out, you know, collecting rent, doing repair work even around the property. Things like that where you're actively involved with it. You're not uh, you know, just passively sitting by and letting a management company handle all that work for you. So you know, as long as you have some active participation, you have the ability to hopefully take some losses, but it is dependent upon your income. So for instance, for married filing joint folks, if your income is over $150,000, even with active participation, if you have losses we're not necessarily going to be able to deduct them in the year that you have the losses. We'll have to carry them forward. Yeah, we're going to talk a bit next week on married filing joint versus filing separate and the pros and cons and how that wraps up into student debt as well. So stay tuned on that. But yeah, you've got active and then you've got non-active participation. And part of this comes now into talking about like passive investing in real estate and we see a lot and we've done shows. I had Dr. Kathy Carroll on from Rica.io talking all about investing in multifamily syndications and the pros and cons of that, which 
I am a fan of. I like those as well. It's a lot easier. I don't think there's anything passive in terms of investing, but you do your due diligence on the sponsor, you do your due diligence on the property, you put your money in and then and then it becomes passive. From a tax standpoint though, now that introduces a little more complexity as you know, right? Where I'm getting some K1s now that kind of come through. And a, a K1 is a tax form for all of you that don't know or maybe don't have this. And so I think, John, if you could talk maybe a little bit about what the K-1 form is and why this new form comes in now that you maybe sit on in terms of like a partnership or you are investing and you're a limited partner because people are investing in syndications and they might not be aware of how this is going to affect their taxes because it is different than if you were just buying single family homes. Yeah, it does add a little bit of complexity to the return. And I guess where a good place to start for us uh, to help understand these is that, uh, Ryan, like you mentioned, a lot of these are formed as partnerships. So let's talk a little bit about what partnerships are and how those impact your taxes. The important thing to remember there is partnerships aren't tax-paying entities. So a lot of what we'll end up talking about here is how we move income and deductions from a non-tax-paying entity to a tax-paying entity, which is individual that's investing in these. So Oh, I don't want to be that person paying the tax. <laughs> yeah. But you legally have to. Yes. So, you know, the partnership itself doesn't pay any federal income tax. So what it does is you receive a K-1 with your share of the income and expenses related to that activity. And that's how the IRS gets its money at the end of the day. So, you know, they know when you receive a K-1 then as well, and they track it into your return and any impact related to that activity is then taxed on your personal return. So. Sometimes we see the pitch for multifamily investing that if you invest in, I don't care, let's say it's $50,000, but it's likely that you're going to show a negative K-1 in maybe the first or the second year because as you are investing this property that, let's say it's a 300-unit apartment building, you're hopefully picking a good sponsor, you're hopefully picking a good asset, but it probably, the reason why you're buying is because it needs to be fixed up, it's got some issues, maybe a new property management company because the old one was grossly mismanaging. So they're putting up a lot of money that might generate a negative K-1. How would that loss, right, that negative K-1 come through? How does that affect someone's personal return? And obviously we know that it doesn't cancel out the clinical income, but let's just kind of walk through how that negative K-1 would then come in and, and affect a personal return. Yeah, and Ryan, I think you're alluding to an important point here in that rental income like this is considered passive when we're doing it through an investment company generally because we're we're assuming that you you don't have any active work that you're doing in these type of investments. So, you know, the important thing to keep in mind is that yes, this can't offset W2 income or self-employment income because it is considered passive and we're not allowed to offset the two types of income together. So, then you might be saying, okay, well, what's the benefit of this, right? You know, you're telling me I've got a lot of losses that I can't deduct. Well, the key is if you have other types of passive income, you know, there's a chance that we can offset some of this rental K-1 loss with other types of passive income. So that's one of the areas that we would look to. So if you have passive income somewhere else, we have passive losses here that can help reduce your tax liability. The other thing to keep in mind, though, is we can't take a loss for more than what we invested in either, at least uh, while we continue to own the property. So 
you know, if you've only invested $10,000 in this, you're not going to generate a $100,000 deduction over time because we haven't invested that much money into it. So hopefully that's not the case with your investment. We hope we're not losing that much money. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, to be honest, when you look at the negative K-1s, that means that you are actually losing money, right? You, but hopefully you're losing it in a way that you're reinvesting back in the properties and that you're getting that benefit and where that could come into play. And I think where a lot of people get stuck in the real estate mindset of like, well, now I've got to do everything. All my eggs are in one basket because if you start generating K-1 income and then you're investing more to generate those early losses that could offset each other, you know, you're trying to play that tax game. Where it ends up happening is you end up being way too heavily invested in real estate, which as you all know, I'm not a fan of anything in extremes. And so then that is going to shift away from whether you should be investing in your other tax deferred accounts, your 401ks, your 403bs, your IRAs, your HSAs, all those other good things. For some reason, we've been seeing a lot of people and getting questions around, should I take out loans from my 401k to then turn around and invest in real estate? I absolutely do not think you should. So if anyone else emails me that question, you already have your answer. Absolutely do not rob yourself in your 401k setting to go leverage it and put it into real estate. Keep them separate. When you invest in real estate, that should be money that is sitting, that is earmarked, I should say, for other investment that is not your 401k, 403b, IRA, HSA, all the other good stuff that you should be doing. That should be money if you're like, huh, should I put it in a taxable account or should I invest in real estate? That's that money. Don't go overboard. But there's a lot of good stuff from a tax standpoint, as you can hear with John and I going through this, that could really help your tax situation out. But what John hasn't said, and I think maybe he'll go into it here, is that with proper tax planning, this stuff becomes a lot easier to manage because most of the time, and I want to say most mean like 90% or more of the time, it's you give all the documents to your accountant. And then it's like, hey, John, work a miracle for me. Figure out how I can pay less tax. And it's like, well, the tax year's over. Like it's all reactive planning. So if you're going to invest in real estate, it is critical to have a good relationship with your accountant so you can then be proactive in trying to manage this. Oh, I have a K1 that's going to be, you know, giving me a little loss. Maybe there's some other ways that we could have some income shown on other properties to offset these things or hey, I'm about to go start a business or invest in different real estate. I think this is really beneficial. It has been for me, at least with John and his team to understand kind of how we manage our pieces and sell our properties and things like that. So I encourage you really to have a good relationship with your accountant on this piece when you're investing in real estate. <laughs> and John's over here smiling like, yeah, because it's a lot of work and there's a lot of mistakes. Uh, you've mentioned a few of them. Do you have any other mistakes maybe that you see physicians typically make around real estate? I would say probably half of the amendments we do in our office with clients is related to real estate. So I can't emphasize that enough, your point of, you know, please work with the tax professional on this, at least in the first year that you're working with real estate, so you can familiarize yourself with it. But yeah, I think we already hit on the big uh, error issues that we see come up most often is around the depreciation topic. And it's not only in the initial year where people are acquiring the property and they forget that they can depreciate it. We see a lot of that 
but also, you know, when they're making capital improvements over the years, we've seen a number of folks that forget, uh, oh, I put a new roof on the apartment uh, this year and it didn't make it on the return. I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah, you know, we could pay for our uh, CPA fees this year just by getting that deduction for you. So, you know, especially capital items like that, uh, we see. Um, another area too that is often missed, especially if you have a property outside of maybe your local area, is travel to inspect the property. Even if it's driving by the property, just to check up on the appearance of it from the outside, keeping mileage records for that. Or if you do have to travel to the city to keep an eye on your property, let's say if it's in a different city, a different part of the country, all of that travel related to that can be deductible if you're checking up on the property on a regular basis. So you know, even things like uh, driving by the property once a week on your way home from work, even though it's maybe only a mile or two outside of your normal commute, and that can turn something that's non-deductible commuting mileage into a potential deduction on your rental property. So just little things like that, um, you, your CPA can probably help you out with if you're working with somebody that you trust. So. So you're saying to buy property where I'd like to vacation is how that works? There is something to be said for that, Ryan. Yeah. You know, maintain a property where all your friends are and, uh, you know, you can go visit the property. Now you can't deduct all of your expenses, obviously. You can't go overboard. Of course not. You don't want to deduct all that. Just like we talked, you know, with a cell phone or an internet bill, like part of that is personal and you should be not able to deduct that, right? Being a good human, like no one wants to pay Uncle Sam more than we should, but let's be realistic. You don't want to push the envelope to the other side and then have them audit you. But yeah, I mean, it's nice. I have family in Vegas. I have the whole team set in Vegas. But when I travel to Vegas, some of it is personal. Some of it, we check in on the properties and see what's going on. It's nice to be able to see some of that and you know be able to have a little bit of a write-off on some of that. So something we said there, if you like to vacation or if you have family or you have friends, you know, a portion of that, just like a portion of your internet bill, if you have a home office, you know, could be deducted. Now, to round this out really quick, we don't have to spend a ton of time on it, John, but there's one other way that, and this is probably the most common way that people start investing real estate is through REITs and buying basically these real estate investment trusts or the ETF versions, like basically in the stock market to have some real estate exposure. There's a couple ways that this could affect your tax situation if it's held in a non-tax deferred, a non-retirement account. So if it's in your 401k or 403b, your IRA, and HSA, we're not talking about that. We're talking about in your taxable account. How does the REITs affect your personal taxes if you're holding them in a taxable account? And just to make it crystal clear, a taxable account is an account for anyone that is trying to figure out maybe what I'm talking about, maybe you haven't opened one yet, is a non-retirement account that is basically think of as like a checking account that can own stocks and bonds. You're going to own and add Vanguard or Fidelity or TD Ameritrade, and it doesn't have any tax protection like your retirement accounts do. Yeah, so in some ways, you know, REITs can function a lot like you know a typical mutual fund uh, in terms of the income and how it's impacted your return. But with REITs, you you tend to see a little bit more varied income types coming out of it, which impacts your tax a little bit differently depending on what type of income is coming out. So let's talk a little bit about that. REITs certainly can have operating income and ordinary income, essentially, that they distribute to their investors. So this would be the surplus of rental income over expenses. You know, they have excess cash flow, and then they would pass that along to the unit holders. That type of income is going to look similar to a dividend that you would receive from a mutual fund. 
and it's going to come through you know your return at potentially ordinary income rates, potentially capital gain rates, depending on how long you've held the investment. REITs can also obviously buy and sell property. So as we talked about a little earlier, those types of transactions would be subject to capital gain rates. So depending on what your income looks like, that could be anywhere from 0% to 20% capital gain rates, which may be better than your ordinary income rates. So they're a little bit more beneficial. So it depends on how actively the REIT is trading properties and buying and selling. Some of them you know, have probably a lot lower transaction volume. So you'll see a little bit less capital gains than others. So it comes into kind of really knowing what uh, the REIT is made out of and what their investment philosophy is. And so you can understand what the income impact will look like. And then they're going to make some return of capital back to you, which would similar to how depreciation worked on the personal side of owning that, that would lower your tax basis into that investment. So there's several different ways that it could also be taxed. And of course, then just buying and selling it like a normal stock, you could generate short-term, long-term, all sorts of potential taxes. And you could also use it to tax loss harvest, which we'll do a whole show on at some point when it comes to your investment accounts. It's not just specific to real estate, but John, Thank you so much for coming on. I know that this is going to be really beneficial for a ton of people that are trying to figure out, should they be buying real estate or maybe they have and then realized, uh-oh, I opened a can of worms that I maybe wasn't as comfortable with and think this is going to really help them understand the you know, different pieces of the tax liability that may or may not occur if they were to buy real estate. I was happy to be on the show. And if you're not working with a CPA, once again, I encourage you to do so. We do a lot of this analysis for clients, especially uh, you know that might have been filing themselves with TurboTax or something for the last few years. Uh, we're always happy to take a look at returns for clients and you know provide some advice and hopefully some tax savings. John's laughing because and looking straight at me when he goes, yeah, we typically do a lot of this advice because I bug John a lot and his team a lot on, hey, we're thinking about buying this or selling this or, hey, this business started up or we're winding this down. So that's kind of a jab at me, but it's all good. I still love him. All right. Well, thank you so much again for being on the show. It's awesome to have you. And we're going to talk next week on married filing joint and separate, which will be fun, but not as fun as real estate. All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, hopefully that was helpful. I know that a lot of you have questions around real estate and investing in real estate. And most of the time we don't think about the tax implications of real estate. Sometimes we hear a little bit about someone pitching some real estate and saying how great it is for your taxes, but it's hard to understand without diving into the tax code or working alongside a CPA how that actually does really affect your taxes. So hopefully this was helpful that you get to hear John go through all the different various ways that taxes are affected by investing and owning real estate, whether it's rental real estate or your own primary residence. Like we mentioned at the beginning part of the show, we are so thrilled to be launching our tax practice, our tax planning and tax preparation practice called Physician Tax Advisors. You can find us at physiciantaxadvisors.com. And at the site, I've mentioned before, we have a wait list open. It's first come, first serve. And for those of you that are already on the wait list, you all are amazing. We will be reaching out to you in the next week or so and excited to be doing some of those introductory calls with all of you in early September. If you are looking to switch up CPAs or looking to work with CPAs that specifically work with physicians and understand the complexities around everything to do with physicians and their finances, we would love to work with you. So please join us at physiciantaxadvisors.com. Remember that this show is educational purposes only. It is not specific financial planning or tax advice. 
So please consult either your CPA, your attorney, or your financial planner, or reach out to us at physicianwealthservices.com. We'd be happy to talk with you about financial planning services as well. All right, everyone. Well, I hope you guys have a fantastic week and I will see you all on Friday. Cheers. Cheers.